Holy Fits by Deborah K. Gaskill Prologue Fiona! Fiona! Talk to me! She was sprawled across the ground. Her service weapon slipped from her hand and her arms hung ragdoll-like along her side as blood pooled beneath her neck. Her eyes locked on mine and her mouth moved, but no words were formed. I couldn't lift her or search where the bullet entered. Blood seeped through my own fingers as I held my right hand over a bullet wound in my left bicep. Her eyes, wide with terror, followed me, but her arms and legs didn't move. If she lived, something told me she'd be paralyzed. I leaned over close to her face, tears rising in my eyes. Fiona, Fiona, please say something. I love you, Fitz. I always did, she whispered. You saved me once. It's my turn to save you. Stay with me, Fee. Stay with me. I staggered to my feet and leaning against the chapel's partial stone wall, lurched to the corner to see where the shooter went. The country road was empty. Did he get away? I clung to consciousness like a man changing his mind halfway through suicide, knowing somehow it was already too late. It was the chaos behind me, the sirens, the gunfire, the yells of the SWAT teams that kept me alert. I staggered back to Fiona and leaned over her, pressing the button on her shoulder microphone. The stars seemed to whirl in the sky, and I teetered on the edge of consciousness. Help! Officer down! We've been shot! We're behind the chapel! The voice at the other end responded, but I couldn't understand it because the ground suddenly tilted and everything went black. Chapter 1 Good morning, Mr. Fitzhugh. Mary Margaret chirped like the goddamn birds outside my bedroom window on mornings I need to sleep in late. It was going to be one of those days. For Christ's sakes, Mary Margaret, call me Fitz. How many times do I have to tell her? It's almost our standard greeting as I stomp past her desk. My name is Nicola Fitzhugh, but nobody calls me that. Everybody calls me Fitz, except my wife, Gracie. She and my family are the only ones who call me Niccolo, especially when they're pissed off at me, which is frequently. I'm a dick, a private dick. I do a little bit of everything. A little criminal investigation, a little insurance work, but mostly it's cheated on wives and their lawyers who want me to find out who hubby slips it to on the side. Some say I've gone soft with success, but that's bullshit. I haven't lost the edge that 20 years as a cop has taught me. There's always a Glock inside my jacket and a brand new car P9 around my ankle, and I'm not afraid to use either one. What I have gotten is bored. Every case that's come my way in the last year has been predictable, easy, and even lucrative. Enough to hire a staff. These weren't the folks I was used to dealing with. The pimps and whores, drunks and junkies, the dumbass crooks and down-on-their-luck losers that made up my days as a cop. My clients were educated, polite, sober folks who didn't have the balls to confront the errant husband or wife. Just the checkbook to have me do it. My God, it's boring. That boredom was starting to seep into all areas of my life, 
spreading like the mold under the sink in the office john and into places i never thought i'd expect gracie calls mary margaret cleary the high price of my success a couple of months away from her college graduation from a catholic women's college with a degree in victorian literature my homely secretary had no concept of police work and will probably die from terminal virginity with my history with women needless to say gracie was an integral part of hiring her juggling the walk-ins and the appointments mary margaret opens the office at eight in the morning when the calls for my services start coming in she also keeps my books leaving me free to handle my increasing caseload boring cases but cash bringing boring cases yes sir again our standard exchange i rolled my eyes and stepped in my office a glassed-in cell the former domain of a bank manager when my office served as the Fawcettville National Bank and Trust. Across the back wall was the teller counters, decorated by Gracie with stray artwork and antiques. Behind that was the vault where I kept the files. Your mother called for you this morning, Mr. Fitzhugh, Mary Margaret called after me. She needs you to call her back right away. I poured myself a cup of coffee from my thermos and ran one hand across my unshaved cheeks. I could have used a hell of a lot more sleep than what I got. I caught a glimpse of myself in the glass walls of my office. I was too old for this late night shit. Yeah, I know, I answered. She called the house just as I was leaving. The night before, I wasted half the night sitting in one of Fawcettville's dive bars, taking cell phone videos as one of the hospital oncologists, drunk out of his mind, slipped $20 bills into a stripper's G-string. And while every man, especially a man in the midst of an ugly divorce, is allowed to go out and get a little crazy, I happened to know this doctor hadn't showed up to check on his patients for two days. As other physicians covered for Dr. Dumbass and his wife built her case for half of the marital assets, he was on his phenomenal bender. The hospital administration hired me to build a case for termination. It wasn't going to take long. I connected my cell phone with my desktop computer and began downloading the video. In a minute, I would email it to the hospital's human resource director and let her take it from there. I could sit back and wait for another big, fat check. Mary Margaret appeared in my doorway, a lot of phone messages in her hand. Father O'Malley from St. Rita's called you, too. He wants to come in as soon as you can see him. Seriously? This guy's name is Father O'Malley? The illusion was lost on Mary Margaret. I sighed. Get him here as soon as he wants. What's the rest of my day look like? Alicia Linnerman called you, too. She has a possible case on a former county employee she wants you to look into. I nodded. Alicia is the county prosecutor and a woman I can only describe as a great broad. I'll call her right now. Mr. Fitzhugh, you really need to call your... Alicia picked up on the first ring. Good morning, Fitz. Her voice was low and husky, with a come-hither tone that could get me in a lot of trouble if I let it. Morning, Alicia. I understand you have something for me. Talking to Alicia automatically dropped my voice down an octave, slowing it to the level of a Barry White ballad. Oh, I do, I do. Along with a possible fraud case. 
an employee from the county utilities department filed for disability. He says his back was irreparably damaged after improperly he lifted sewer covers over the past two years he worked for us. I heard pages from the case file rustle in the background. We don't believe he's truly disabled. I thought you'd be able to get this guy with very little trouble. Can do, my dear. Drop in later this afternoon and we'll get you the details. Sure. And Fitz, how are you and Gracie doing? Great, just great. Oh, that's too bad. Alicia had a thing for bad boys, and me specifically. She needed to get over that, and fast. As bored as I'd become with my life, Alicia Linnerman could be more temptation than my marriage could handle. Even I wasn't that stupid. We chatted for a few minutes before hanging up. Mary Margaret was still standing in my doorway, her shoulders sagging. What is it now? You've got other calls from some attorneys looking for help on divorce cases. I told them you would take a look at your calendar and get back to them as soon as possible. The details of each case are included in the messages. But you should really call your mother. Mary Margaret laid all but one phone message on my desk. I pointed to the slip of blue paper in her hand. So what's that one? She pushed her thick glasses up her nose and held the message close to her flat chest. This one is personal, Mr. Fitzhugh. The person Father O'Malley wants to talk to you about? She's my grandmother. It was just before lunch when Father O'Malley, Mary Margaret, and her mother, Bridget Cleary, were sitting in a circle around my desk. The problem, Mr. Fitzhugh, is my mother. Miss Cleary said. Like most of Fawcettville, I knew Bridget from high school. She'd been the homely friend of my younger, wilder, and better-looking sister Katie, or Mary Catherine as Ma and Pa called her when she was caught doing something she shouldn't have, which was frequently. Mary Margaret's sartorial problems could be traced to her gene pool. Like her daughter, Bridget also wore big, thick glasses and hadn't benefited from orthodontics or a good taste in clothing. She was a little younger than me, by about five years, but looked ten years older. She married Harvey Cleary just out of college, and he had the audacity to die of a heart attack soon after Mary Margaret was born. Harvey's funeral was the last time Bridget even dressed up for anything, retreating into her clapboard house in Fawcettville's Irish neighborhood to raise her daughter and sink further into frumpiness. As far as I knew, no male had ever crossed that threshold again. Today was no different. She wore the standard uniform of every first grade teacher I ever knew. A white short sleeve shirt beneath a dumpy denim jumper that hung down past her knees. Ankle socks with red Ked sneakers made her thick legs look more so. Bridget hadn't quite realized that it was June and she wasn't addressing a room full of six-year-olds. Her words were short, spoken slowly and clearly in a sing-song rhythm. I wanted to choke her from the moment she opened her mouth. My mother has started attending a new Catholic church in town, St. Matilda's. Why is that a problem? Father O'Malley shifted in his seat and cleared his throat. <clears throat> As I told Miss Cleary, the problem is that it's not a real Catholic church. The bishop believes it's a cult. A Catholic cult in Fawcettville? Now I'm interested. 
Fawcettville, Ohio, was a Rust Belt haven for Catholics whose heritage harkened back to Italy, Germany, Hungary, or Poland. From birth to death, every celebration in between, St. Rita's was the center of many of these folks' lives. Nearly as much local history come through its doors since it was built of native limestone in the 1800s. The immigrants who first came to the area to work the potteries thanked God for their good fortune at St. Rita's. The church had seen much pain, too. After the potteries closed, those immigrants went to work in the steel mills. When those closed, St. Rita's congregation, along with Fawcettville at large, entered a long, drawn-out economic night. It wasn't until the fracking industry came into this part of the state that things once again began to turn around for F-Town. Flammable drinking water seemed to be the price folks here were willing to pay for regular wages. Unfortunately, yes. Father O'Malley ran his fingers between his clerical collar and his throat, and the man who set himself up as the <clears throat> abbot has a rather questionable past as well. Like what? He claims to reject the changes that came about as a result of Vatican II. Still holds mass in Latin. That's not a crime, Father, I said. My own mother prefers Latin mass, and she can still recite it from memory. It's a crime when he's bilking little old ladies out of their savings, Mary Margaret cried. She sat up very straight in her chair and pushed her thick glasses up her nose. This man stole $50,000 from Grammy, and that's just not right, Mr. Fitzhugh. That's just not right. He got her to donate the money to fund his abbey outside of town. Bridget clearly joined the conversation in her slow, first-grade voice and put her hand on her daughter's knee. Mary Margaret calmed down. They found some old farmhouse with a barn and have started building a chapel with the money my mother gave him. What's Grammy's name? I asked, making quick notes. Eileen, Bridget said. Eileen O'Connor. What concerns us most is that this supposed abbot has taken my mother out to the farm and she's living there. She's in the beginning stages of dementia, unfortunately. He's convinced her that since she's widowed and her children are grown, she can enter his abbey as a nun or something. Unfortunately, she was out there for nearly a month before I realized it. I think it's an effort to get the rest of her money from her. What's this fake abbot's name? I rub my forehead. This is looking more and more like a con and the case that could shake me out of my boredom. He goes by Abbot Benedict St. Giles. Mary Margaret laid a stack of papers on my desk and pushed them towards me. I've been doing research on fake priests. There's a guy in Ashtabula named Roger Clark, and he's been charged with fraud before while posing as a priest. I'll bet this is the same man. In Fawcettville, a town filled with surnames that spanned Central and Eastern Europe, a name like Roger Clark would stand out like a sore thumb. No wonder he chose a cheap soap opera moniker like Benedict St. Giles. Why don't you go to the police? I asked. Bridget clearly sighed and started her slow sing-song answer. I'm embarrassed, frankly. I just want her out of that place and away from that man. I know she's most likely lost her money, but I'd be happy to get her back into a nursing home where she belongs. How did she end up going to services at St. Matilda's? Mary Margaret spoke up. 
Grammy played bingo at St. Rita's twice a week. Then she and her friends would go have pie and coffee. Her friends were everything to her. Even when her cataracts got bad and couldn't drive anymore, they came and got her. One of those friends, who said they really missed Latin Mass, went out there for a service. They figured out right then the whole place was fake and wouldn't go back. But St. Giles zeroed in on Grammy. He had somebody come pick her up for the service every day. Before we knew it, that awful man had her living out there. Mom checked Grammy's savings account. She signed on with her and found 50000 gone. As her priest, I advised Miss Cleary that such a large sum of money is probably enough to call the police over, Father O'Malley said. But I can't talk her into doing so. Under Ohio law, that amount constitutes first-degree felony theft. There are additional penalties if an elderly person is involved. You have every right to go to the police, and probably should, I said. If you don't want to, I understand. But here's my terms. I shoved a service contract across the table. Bridget Cleary peered down her glasses at the contract. Oh, my, you're, um, expensive. Mary Margaret took the paper from her mother. She gasped at my hourly rates. Mr. Fitzhugh, you couldn't, like, do this for me as an employee for free? Father O'Malley folded his hands and his Irish eyes became somber with concern. Your mother told me you'd be glad to do this at a reduced rate, if not for free. That's why we approached you. Your reputation for discretion and your mother's promise of a discount. Ma! I completely forgot to call her back. I dropped my head into my hands. I'd been outmaneuvered. Please consider a small monthly donation to help us fund the cost of producing this podcast. Make no mistake, we do this podcast as a labor of love, but your support would be greatly appreciated. We've devised three levels of sponsorship, support, and rewards. Level 1 patrons will have their names and locations read on the next podcast. Our Level 2 patrons will receive a copy of Holy Fits, autographed by author Deborah Gaskill. Our Level 3 patrons will receive a complete set of the Fracktown Gumshoe novels, currently six books, autographed by author Deborah Gaskill. If you would like to support Fracktown Gumshoe, go to https colon backslash backslash patron dot podbean.com backslash Fracktown Gumshoe. This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Fracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.